Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader podcast. Great to be with you. Our topic today is discerning God's presence in apparent failure. Discerning God's presence in apparent failure. We're, we're living in a very unique season with so much of life and leadership and church and work as we know it, having experienced such an upheaval in the midst of this global pandemic. So many leaders I speak with and talk with feel like failures, like we're moving backwards and are out there trying very much to hold things together. Now, so many trends that were already present have accelerated. Uh, That makes us quite dizzying. It can be everything from things moving online to hybrid workplaces to, again, family, church, social media, Zoom. Uh, In fact, many churches uh, are down in attendance uh, by 30%, 40%, some 50% or more. Uh, And not just here in North America, but other places around the world. People have moved away. Some have simply disappeared. Others have moved to other churches. Some have stopped going altogether. And people are out of their rhythms. And for smaller churches or church plants, this is particularly disorienting. And one worries about the future. As one pastor said to me recently, he goes, I... Uh, I feel like I have a whole different church. Uh, They were about 250, 300 people. And he goes, we've lost about half of them and at least, and maybe another 50 new ones have showed up. But he he was just so discouraged because, as he said, it's hard to build up energy uh, to build all over again. And another, uh, again, pastor leader said to me, it's just, it's so difficult. Uh, You know, we don't touch in church any longer. People are wearing masks. Uh, I might as well just go back online (laughs) Uh, because it doesn't, the, the services don't have the same level of warmth that they used to, at least at this point. And uh, it, it's just a, it's it's a there's a slowness of the work that's happening right now, and it's confusing. And that's why today I want to offer you a thesis to ponder before God, and that's this: that God is equally present in failure as well as success. God's equally present in failure as well as success. In other words, God's present in setbacks and losses and disappointments dead ends and walls and uh, God's present uh, in your ministry, your life, your church, or your leadership. Uh, There's just so much to learn in these days. God is coming to us. So many of us want to keep change. We want to change the situation that we're in and get back to, quote, normal. But really, God's out to change us and our understanding and knowledge of him and his ways and our situation may look uh, like a failure, even like a disaster, but in actuality, there's a many blessings and opportunities and gifts from God coming to us and to heal us, deliver us, form us on a, on a much deeper level. We naturally, you know, we carry over into our churches, into our leadership, uh, the culture, the myths of the culture, the big, the impressive. It's, it was no different in Jesus's day. I mean, just start imagine the first century Israel, Herod built this massive temple. He had these, one of the, it was one of the wonders of the world. He had these massive palaces. There was Rome. Uh, there was the great religious temple of Artemis and Ephesus. Athens had their brilliant intellectuals. Uh, and in fact, first century Israel, they, when they thought of God's kingdom, they thought of power and triumph and deliverance from suffering under the Roman Empire. They a return to David and Solomon's kingdom. Uh, that God would come, introduce a new age, and God's people will finally be at the head of the nations. And their symbol of this was the uh, cedars of Lebanon. They, they were they would these these great trees in Lebanon would be comparable to the 
gigantic redwood or sequoia trees of California that grow up so, so high. And and their expectation was that Israel would be, would be like a, the trees of Lebanon, the, the greatest nation in all the world, the greatest of all the trees. But then Jesus comes along and says, uh, no, you don't get it. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest and most insignificant of all seeds. And yet it's going to grow to be basically a shrub of four to six feet high with birds nesting in its branches. And so the mustard seed of Jesus' kingdom doesn't become the greatest tree of their day, which would have been a cedar of Lebanon or a redwood or a sequoia going two to 300 feet high, towering over everything. Jesus says, no, this kingdom of mine is growing, but it's a mustard seed. And so Jesus' kingdom destroys all these grandiose ideas we have of uh, who God is and what God's kingdom is going to come like. We want big th- buildings and great cathedrals and stadiums full of people and large numbers and influence and power to influence government and the news and uh, politics around us. We want to be a triumphant church for for Jesus' sake. And But, but Jesus says, no, no, the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. It's insignificant. It looks insignificant. It looks powerless. It looks defeated. In the end, it will be glorious and fill the earth uh, but the kingdom is always, my kingdom, says Jesus, is always little. It's always seed-sized. It's always a treasure in earth and vessels. Uh, and, I, and so it was always Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. You know, it didn't look like much in the book of Genesis. It's Moses, 40 years in the wilderness and starting his ministry at age 80. It didn't look like much. Or Gideon leading an army of only 300 against an army of 135,000. It's always, you know, appears insignificant. Samuel's and Saul's and Isaiah. No one listened to him for 50 years of preaching. Or Jeremiah during the exile. He looked so so unfruitful. And Daniel and Ezekiel, this goes on. Or John the Baptist in prison wondering if Jesus is the Messiah. The smallness of Jesus' kingdom, it's always a scandal. Uh, even Christ in a manger and Nazareth and with the 12 disciples who seemed so unqualified, Jesus just didn't look very powerful or overwhelming. And he didn't crush people with his intellect or wisdom. Uh, He just appeared defeated, a loser. That's why Judas quit on him. I mean, even a verse like Psalm 105, which I, you know, read the other day, that says, God sent Joseph, sold as a slave, and they bruised his feet with shackles. That's some Psalm 105. And I mean, what was God doing sending Joseph into slavery in Egypt? Uh, but it says God sent Joseph. So we're looking for triumph. We're looking for some big showy ideal of what the church should be in some grandiose accomplishment. But we're looking actually for the wrong kingdom. It's not the one that Jesus came to bring. And so the thesis that he is God is equally present in failure as well as success. And we've been so fixated on a a definition of success and a way of doing church, and God has broken it up. Um, And we're really not that different than first century Israel or the 12 disciples under Jesus that had a kind of a wrong expectation. And they were missing God and the kingdom of God and the smallness and the insignificance and the apparently powerlessness of Jesus. Uh, We're looking for a great visible organization or ministry, a church that's going to fill the earth. Uh, It's just not God's idea of Success and see when we realize the reality of God's nearness to to us and his and his presence, uh, success and failure are relativized. In other words, it doesn't matter if we succeed by our own estimation or goals or that of others. God is so present, so alive. Nothing can take him from us. We just do our little with our talents, and and the kingdom grows slowly. It's so 
freeing. We forget that the early church in the book of Acts, yes, they had 3,000, 5,000, this massive church in Jerusalem, but we forget that God scattered that church with a persecution in Acts 8 to send them out uh, to all the earth and to get them moving because they were building almost like a little tower of Babel of themselves and God's mission for them was to go out into all the earth. It's so interesting, Jerry Jerry, uh, was leading a training and I was with her uh, of table leaders for the Emotionally Healthy Relationships course. And it was it was for eight people, actually, but it was a tremendous amount of work. There was two parts to it. There was a mentoring piece. They were getting coached and they had to bring some other people and, and practice coaching them and some skills. But it took hours, many hours. And, and when it was over, you know, Jerry looked at me and said, well, it sure doesn't look like much uh, in light of the fact there's you know, almost seven and a half to eight billion people in the world for these eight people. And, you know, we just looked at each other and we said, yeah, but it sure is powerful. Uh, what was done for those eight people as they lead others who lead others uh, in discipleship. Uh, so we need, sh- we need to shift our Christianity from mega to mustard seed. Uh, and recognizing that God is equally present in what looks like failure as well as what looks like success. In other words, God's found in unexpected places and ways so different than what we expected. Again, it's one of the great points that Jesus was trying to make in his teachings in the, in the, about the kingdom. I mean, just think of the parable, for example, of, of the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. And if you remember the devout Pharisees in the temple and he's praying, and, uh, and, and then he's in the holy place. And then you got the tax collector, the sinner outside the temple, uh, and he's aware of his sin, sinfulness, and and Jesus commends the tax collector because you know of his humility and brokenness and all this. And and the point is that God was found is found not only inside the temple, but God's outside the holy place of the temple. He's he working. He's working everywhere. Uh, and God's not only working in our meetings; He's working all around us. He's stretching us. Even the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, Samaritans were. If you remember the story, the guy's half dead in the side of the road. Um, been beaten up by robbers. And, and in this parable, the priest and the Levite walk right by him. They were the insiders. They were the holy folks. They were they were the top of the hierarchy. But then it's the Samaritan, third person who walks along, who's an outsider. He's a, he's considered a heretic by by Israel, ancient Israel. He's an apostate uh, because they, they've corrupted scripture. They, they've compromised the truth of God. And that's why the rabbinic rabbis would say at that time, one who eats the food of Samaritans is eating the food of swine or pigs. They were morally corrupt Samaritans. And uh, and so when, when the, it's so interesting because as the Levite and the, and the uh, priest pass by, the, the listeners are expecting, okay, maybe an ordinary is, a faithful you know person in Israel will walk by and he'll he'll take care of him, but no, a, a Samaritan shows up, and and uh, he becomes the one who takes care of the guy and binds up his wounds, of half dead man, and takes care of him. He's the mortal enemy. Uh, he pours oil on him. He functions as the kindness of God. In other words, God's presence comes through the Samaritan. There was a last thing they were expecting. You know, Thomas Keating tells a story. Uh, he's a formerly a Trappist monk. He's gone to be with the Lord now, but he tells a story of a woman whose son is murdered. Uh, he knew this woman and she'd been very uh, deep in the act in the practice of contemplative prayer. But it was a terrible tragedy. It was her only son and he was just out of college, had a great future in front of him and he's murdered uh, by a sociopath, a guy who, who just wanted to kill someone for the sheer pleasure of 
exercising absolute power over someone. And of course, the guy is sent to prison. It's just a horrific evil, a terrible thing. And now, why, God, would you allow such a thing? I mean, this man, this young college graduate, had the whole future in front of him. But after much prayer, um, the woman, the mother, writes to this man, telling him that she forgives him. He doesn't respond. But a year later, he does write back. And, uh, but he has no remorse, no, no sorrow for what he's done. And then she writes back and asks if she could see him. Again, another year passes. Finally, he says, okay. And so she goes. It's a long drive. And she gets there, and he describes all the abuse he experienced growing up and his horrific childhood. And then he says to her, you cannot imagine the immense joy I felt when I stood over your son and realized I had killed him. Because for him, it was the moment of ultimate power. But the mother stood her ground. And her forgiveness was unshaken. The social worker couldn't believe it. So later, the social worker wrote to this mother and said, you know, this man has actually started to change a little bit. He shows a little more courtesy and consideration for other inmates. So the mother stayed, felt moved to stay in contact with the prisoner. And she offered to return to visit him. And he said, no, please don't. If you do... I'll have to face the unbearable pain of my life. But she did go. And at the end of her visit, she embraces him. And she detects, she sees a tiny tear in the corner of his eye. And as Keating writes, and in a very real sense, she had become his mother and he's becoming her son. And here's what Keating writes. He goes, was God's kingdom active in the monumental corruption involved in this event. Perhaps the movement of one person from total inhumanity to the capacity to shed a single tear is a greater act of God than the sanctification of a saint. Who can judge? Jesus often identified himself with the outcasts of society that everybody had given up on by sharing a meal with them. Evidently, the kingdom of God was active there. The kingdom, of course, is at work everywhere. But the parable suggests it's mightiest in the marginalized and the events we characterize as unmitigated evil. To draw a single tear to us, almost imperceptible, from a heart of stone must cause all creation to vibrate with joy and wonder at the power of God's love and his kingdom. God is just so much bigger than we think. I mean, the visible universe, as we know it, is a million, 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 million miles across that we know, the visible universe. The edge of the universe is, they say, 90 billion trillion miles away. I mean, it's a big universe out there that God has created. Our Earth alone is moving around the sun at 66,000 miles per hour. I mean, the massiveness of God, and, and he's just... He's so big, so much bigger than our small, puny, tiny minds can see in the short term. And what I want you to think about and ponder and get into your bones is this. God is equally present in failures as well as successes. He's that big. As Jesus, as, a, as, as, the, Revel, as the book of Revelation uh, shows us, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. He is the ruler 
of all the kings of the earth. Tremendous. So let me invite you, let me offer three invitations to you here on this podcast today to consider. First is this, to let God do his deep work in you in these days. So let God do that deep work in you to, to, to actually get it, to ponder this, that God is equally present in failure as well as success. It will change everything for you. It'll just, it'll just relax you. It'll free you. Listen to him. Let, let, let God take you to new places. Uh, yes, your situation may look perhaps like a disaster or really bad, but in actuality, it is a great blessing and an opportunity uh, for God to transition you and heal you and deliver you on a new level, on a deep level that perhaps would not have positioned you otherwise to experience or him or hear him uh, like you can now. Uh, this is a time, a season of maturing and growing up and learning. Uh, in fact, let me just mention to you, I, I want to invite you again to take, if you've never taken the Emotionally Healthy Personal Assessment, I want to invite you to take it. It's about a 15, 20-minute assessment based on uh, what we consider the seven marks of a discipleship that deeply changes lives out of the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book. Things like slowing down to be with God before you do, the receiving God's gift of limits and loss and grief and the treasures that God has and then breaking the power of the past, leading out of brokenness. And they're all kind of, they're, they're, they're missing elements of our discipleship. And just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. That's emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature and check out that personal assessment. Take it for yourself. Get on that journey of letting God do a deep work in you. And let me tell you something, to get to a place where you can recognize Everything is sacred. God's presence, uh, even in failure as well as success, is a incredibly powerful reality and truth to take into your bones. But then secondly, invitation, I want to invite you not just to let God do his work in you, but to focus on quality of what you are building, to focus on the quality of what God has put before you. It's not size, it's quality. I've been rereading and uh, pondering uh, in these days, in my own morning prayer times, the book of Revelation, letting it kind of wash over me and over me. And one of the things that so struck me was, as you as you all know, the book was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, present day Turkey. What's so incredible is that Jesus is taking such intimate concern about the quality of what's going on in those churches. I mean, he you know he, he he owns the galaxies. He he's the ruler of the whole ruler of the whole earth, but he's intimately concerned about details of what's going on in each of these seven churches. And so, uh, in, in, for example, in the Church of Ephesus, again, these are these are not. I mean, Ephesus was a big city. Some of these cities I'm going to mention are very small, but he commends them for their works, their toil, and their patient endurance. He knows what's going on in Ephesus in the, in the church there. The church in Smyrna, he, he goes, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He knows they're poor. And he goes, but actually you're rich. But he, he's intimately involved with the quality of what's going on there. And he speaks to the quality of the church at Thyatira. Uh, he goes, I know your works and your faith and your love and your service and your patient endurance, but I have this against you. You, know, you tolerate this false prophetess. And, and uh, again, he, he's, so, he's so involved uh, Sardis, he says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Again, he, he knows what's going on in that church. That's different than the other churches. Uh, in, in Philadelphia, he goes, I know you have but little power, but you've kept my word. And I've set before you an open door that no one can shut. And 
And again, Laodicea, I know your works that you're neither hot or cold, but he knows each church differently, intimately. He's just, he, he's concerned about the quality of what God has put in front of you uh, in what you're building, whether it's your your uh, you know your ministry within the church, the church as a whole that you're leading. It may be you're a marketplace leader. It may be the the, the folks you're leading in your in your place of employment. That's like your that's like your church there, or your family, uh, your community. But Jesus sees it, and a little bit is a lot before Him, uh, and and so that's why success is so much more than numbers and what is visibly apparent to other people. I mean, success is things like remaining in communion with Jesus all through the day, abiding in him. It's it's allowing God to do the deep work of transformation inside of you, to let him lead you like he led Abraham to new unknown places. Uh, it's redefining failure and success. It's, it's trusting and relaxing in Jesus. It's receiving God's limits as a gift. It's, it's being present to, to the sacredness all around us, that all of life is sacred. And it's being present to the beauty and value of the people uh, around you. It's taking a lot of time to let losses and uh, change change you and transition you. The list goes on. But there's a third invitation. That's this. And it's to be faithful to, to give food to those God has entrusted to you. In other words, God's put in front of each of us uh, people that we are to take care of, we're to feed. Uh, and it's it's been trusted to us. And we want to be faithful with that, uh, regardless of what's happening around us externally. I, I love the parable in Matthew 24 when Jesus says, Who is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? We are to, we are to give food to those whom were his servants, and we are in charge of other folks, and we're to serve them Jesus's food in his name. God has allowed, for reasons way beyond I could ever understand, the suffering of a global pandemic in the world. Uh, It's a season we're in. Uh, Now, we don't fight seasons. We lean into seasons. We, We discern the season and we cooperate with the season. That's why in Ecclesiastes 3 is such an important text where it says, to everything there is a season a time for every purpose under heaven. Uh, we are in a season. Uh, and as, she's, as Ecclesiastes says, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to plant, a time to scatter. This is a season. And uh, yes, there is grieving and there is loss. And we wait on God to birth something new out of, the, out of, the, uh, out of, this, out of these losses. Uh, there are treasures here uh, in the midst of this global pandemic. Uh, Yes, God's inviting us to embrace his gifts of limits. We hate limits, but there are gifts to receive in the midst of the limits that we're experiencing. Just this one truth of today that God is as present in failure as well as he is in success, that alone is life-changing. And uh, so it is, I am convinced, one thing I know is happening. It's a time for us in the church as leaders in particular, to grow up, to mature, to learn, to be changed by God uh, so that we then can give that kind of food to those whom we're serving and will serve for the rest of our days, that the church that will follow us in the generation and the generation to come and the generation after that uh, will have a power and a sturdiness 
uh, that will impact the whole world. So again, uh, find out, you know, take this personal assessment, emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. Uh, get a sense of where you are on that journey yourself that by God's grace, uh, you may uh, feed people in Jesus' name well. So remember, as we leave here, God is equally present in failure as well as success. He really is everywhere if we will but see him. So the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you this day uh, for the glory of his name. Be blessed. Great to be with you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you.